You know what's important? Your safety and the safety of your loved ones. And because Simply Safe Home Security embraces this with truly customer first policies, we use and trust their advanced security technology in our own home. It helps us sleep at night, it's affordable, and I like knowing there's a trained team of people ready and waiting to help us out if we need it. Just in case. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash legends. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash legends. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the start of a two-part episode from Indian folklore. We'll see predator and prey become best friends, why you shouldn't let your kids or monkeys play at active construction sites, and how sacrilegious cosplay might help your friend marry a princess. The creature this time is a half-human, who's completely terrifying, except when it comes to his terrible hide-and-seek choices. This is Myths and Legends, episode 283A, King of the Jungle. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is from the first part of the Panchatantra. It's a collection of stories nestled in a framing narrative, and all of them kind of have a lesson. That honestly would probably dissuade me from reading them, but these are not as milk toast and kind of obvious as some fables. For one, many of the stories are extremely short. Little espresso shots of stories. Also, they're like if Littlefinger from Game of Thrones tried his hand at Aesop's fables. They can be brutal and Machiavellian. Quick note on the story today, too. There are so many different versions of this collection in hundreds of languages. This is not the definitive version, just one that happened to have an accessible English translation. The collection itself dates back to 200 BC and was originally written in Sanskrit. And the fables are thought to be much older than that. Anyway, we'll jump right in. We're in the jungle, and all the animals are following the lion around. All the animals except for the jackals, who have found themselves, recently, out of a job. You know what? I'm just gonna say it. You're out of your depth. Cheek, the jackal, said to Victor, also a jackal. They were watching as the lion, named Rusty, ventured out to the river for a drink. Rusty was, of course, the king of the jungle, a position he maintained with so much bloodshed. Also, free lunches. Tagging along were all the animals that benefited from the lion's kills, who got to feast on his leavings after he had his fill. The jackals were not part of this. Their dad had been a minister in Rusty's court, and the jackals had thought nepotism was their birthright. They were shocked when they found out that, coming of age after their father died, the lion decided to go in a different direction. Also, he would eat them if they came close to his traveling group. They had been subsisting on what they found around the forest, and Cheek was content. Victor, though, remembered the riches and honor his father had access to. Half-eaten dead animals for days. He would have it again. And, with a strange bellow from the water up ahead... He found his opening. Rusty and his retinue froze. It, you know what? This has been a nice walk. Water? Oh, yeah. The river was up there. They weren't thirsty, though. Time to go. Quickly. Victor 
cocked his head. Huh, that was odd. Rusty, the lion who lorded over all of them with an iron paw, was turning back. Why? Cheek shook his snout. Victor shouldn't worry about the affairs of his betters. Victor replied that he did worry about them, and betters? Why were any of them a jackal's better? The jackals were smarter than all of them. Yeah, if you're so smart, why are we skin and ribs? Cheek said. Why didn't they get to feast like all the others, having to spend their nights chasing rabbits through the forest, or picking over the thrice-eaten leavings? Victor pointed a paw at his brother. Cheek was right. It shouldn't be like that. They should be running this jungle. They would be running this jungle. Brother, come on, let it go, Cheek said. Victor shouldn't meddle. Remember the wedge-extracting monkey? Victor said, okay, that was a non-sequitur. It's the story of the wedge-pulling monkey. Did Dad never tell you about the wedge-pulling monkey? Victor shook his head. So, Cheek started in on the story of the wedge-pulling monkey. Each day at noon, the workers building the temple would take a lunch. That was a hard out, too, because one of the mechanics had been in the middle of splitting a log. In fact, she had just stuck the wedge in when the foreman called out that it was break time. She left the wedge in, and she'd finish up after lunch. Well, the monkeys liked to come and play around at the work site at lunch while the workers were away. One monkey, climbing on the log next to the wood pile, looked at the wedge sticking out of the wood. He straddled the log. Huh, weird. What was that wedge doing there? Not leaving well enough alone and meddling in the affairs of people who knew better, the monkey began to pull at the wedge. Now, normally this wouldn't have been bad, but the monkey wasn't considering all of his vulnerabilities. Namely, he was a he, and not everything straddled the gap. No, Victor said, covering his mouth with a paw. Yes, Cheek replied. When the wedge came loose, other things tightened. Victor said, one, that is horrifying. Two, the monkey didn't know what he was getting himself into. Victor did. Victor was smarter than all the animals, present company excluded. Before the year was out, they would all be in his power. They would be working for him. Cheek worried, but Victor said he would see. Victor left his brother to follow the source of the sound that scared off the lion in his retinue. That was how he found Lively. A few days earlier, a merchant had been traveling through the jungle. A few weeks before that, the merchant realized that he was rich, but was he rich enough? The answer to that question, for the characters in any story we've told, is never yes, so he up and moved to a city where his goods would fetch a higher price. He yoked up two bulls, joyful and lively, and started the journey. The problem with having too much stuff is that you have too much stuff. The bulls couldn't handle it, and Lively was the first to break down overworking himself. The merchant divided up his stuff and continued on with Joyful, ordering his servants to hang out with Lively until the bull recovered, and then continue on. Otherwise, he would meet them at the edge of the jungle in five days' time, after they performed the funeral rites for the bull. The servants, deciding that the jungle was dangerous and scary, opted to abandon the bull to whatever was going to happen, dragged the goods to the edge of the jungle, and gave the merchant the terrible, terrible news. Lively, though, didn't know what to do with his newfound freedom. 
he limped to the edge of the river and started bellowing sadly. Hey, buddy, he heard behind him. Lively turned and stepped back, hoof on the edge of the river, away from the jackal that was a fraction of his size. The bull lowered his head. Hello, fox, dog, thing. Sorry, he wasn't sure what Victor was. He was from a farm near the city. I'm a jackal and, uh, first question, how dare you? Second part of that sentence? Bellow so loudly in Rusty's jungle. Victor stepped forward. The bull stepped back. The bull's horns swayed back and forth. Oh, he was super sorry. He didn't know who Rusty was. He had just been left here by his master. He was just trying to survive. Victor grimaced. Well, that was a lofty goal. After all that noise, the bull begged. Please, he could explain it all to the lion. He wasn't a threat. The fox dog, Jackal. The Jackal was sympathetic and eloquent. Could he speak with the lion and obtain safe passage? The Jackal nodded. Huh, maybe. He would see what he could do. It's a bull, Victor said, the wolf snarling at him as he approached Rusty's court under the spreading banyan tree. I think the gods brought it here. Rusty waved off the wolf and laughed. A bull? A grass nibbler. To think that he, to think that everyone else but him had been so scared of that sound? Good work, Victor, in approaching him. Victor said that he was always happy to serve the crown. There was something else, though. The bull wanted safe passage to speak with the lion. The bull, lively, also agreed to the lion's safety as well. The lion sat back. Hmm, a curious traveler in these woods. The bull must truly be from the gods. Sure, he would vouch for the bull's safety in these lands. Victor bowed low and went to get the bull. Now that you have the king's favor, you should remember how you got it, Victor explained to Lively, the bull, as they walked side by side in the jungle. Lively said, of course, Victor did him a kindness. Oh yeah, definitely. Victor ducked under a branch that Lively then obliterated. But also, what's done can be undone. Lively's heard the story of Strong Tooth and the King, right? Lively said, no. Victor told of a human merchant, Strong Tooth, who, in addition to his forward-thinking dental care, directed a king's entire administration. He understood all the groups in town and managed all of their interests. But one time, at his daughter's wedding, a servant of the king, named Bull, sat where he shouldn't, so Strongtooth had him beaten and thrown out. You know, standard stuff. Bull wasn't too happy about that, so the next time when he was up early cleaning the palace, he was muttering something about Strongtooth kissing on the queen. The king called him in the next day, asking, what was all that business about the merchant and the queen? Strongtooth said he didn't know, what? He had been up drinking and gambling the night before, so he came to work half asleep and still a little drunk. The king, recognizing the truthful words of people in their sleep, and not addressing several workplace issues there, had Strongtooth thrown out. But the tough thing about throwing out the guy who's propping up your entire economy is that no one is now propping up your economy. Things plummeted, and one day, Bull was tending to some things outside when he saw Strongtooth moping at the gate. Strongtooth begged him to be let in, bribed him with some fancy pants, that actual fancy clothes he gifted Bull, and was admitted back into the castle. When Bull, 
in another post-gambling binge foe sleepwalk, said that he, quote, saw the king eating a cucumber while at stool. Now, at face value, this seems like he's saying he saw the king eating a cucumber while sitting on a stool. Maybe. Maybe it's something else. Regardless, the king said he has never eaten a cucumber while at stool. If Bull was wrong about that, maybe he was wrong about Strongtooth. So, he admitted Strongtooth back in, and everyone lived happily. So, you know, watch what you say when you're the king's favorite, Victor said. But I'm... I'm Bull? Lively mood? No, you're a Bull. In the story, I'd be Bull. The Jackal tried to clarify his threat. Well, that's just confusing, Lively said, clomping into the area under the banging tree. Why were you making that not scary noise that I definitely wasn't scared of? The lion, Rusty, boomed. Lively said, oh, it was because he was scared. His merchant master had left him in a wild place he didn't know, and he felt anxious and unmoored. The lion said that, wow, that was refreshingly honest. The bull just said he was scared? Lively nodded, yeah. He tried to be real with his feelings and such. But the king here had saved Lively's life, made him not afraid. He was so grateful for that. Rusty said, oh, oh wow, yeah, think nothing of it. And while Lively was in this land, he would be safe. Lively thanked the king again and hobbled over to bow. Rusty said, hey now, what was all this? Lively said he had been hurt by pulling goods through the jungle. He'd heal and get strong again. The lion said, yeah, he would. With personal trainer Rusty, he'd help the bull get to the point where he could pull two wagons full of goods. What do you do for your strength workouts? Squats, deadlifts, barbell, pilates? The bull said, he, it was probably pronounced Pilates but he didn't really do strength training? Well, there's your problem. Rusty threw his paw around the bull, and together, the apex predator and the prey animal that could have gored him in one move walked off into the jungle as friends, while the lion's retinue sat in disbelief. Victor grinned. Phase one of his plan was complete. We'll see Victor's plan continue on through lots of failure and alienation, but that will be right after this. Things were not going well. Well, for Lively and Rusty, they were. Rusty was training Lively to get strong again, and Lively was helping Rusty to become a better version of himself. Unfortunately, that better version of himself didn't do a whole lot of catching and killing of other animals. So everyone who relied on the lion's leavings were going hungry. You did this. You, Cheek yelled at Victor. You were playing with hot coals when you introduced those two. Now they're best buds. Things are worse than ever, even for us. Well, Cheek didn't need to worry. Victor had a plan for separating the lion and the bull. You don't have the power to do that, Cheek scowled, but Victor held up a claw. Oh, he didn't have the power, but he did have the intellect. Didn't Cheek know the story of how the crow hen killed the snake? Cheek said, why did he get the feeling they were about to start a story? It was because they were about to start a story. 
One time, a crow couple lived at the top of the banyan tree, but they were having a difficult time having children. It's not that they couldn't get bird pregnant, it's that every time they did, a black snake crawled up the trunk of the tree and ate the chicks almost as soon as the babies hatched. The crow hen wanted to leave, but the male crow refused. This tree had been in his family for four generations, so like 12 years. He wouldn't leave now. The wife rolled her eyes. Well, they had to do something. The crow snapped his feathers. He had it. He would fly down and talk to the jackal. Now, the jackal was friendly and ripped and great at math, and named Cheek. I like the story, Cheek chimed in. Anyway, the super cool jackal had just the answer to this, but to say it, they had to go deeper. He started the story of the heron that liked crab meat. The heron paced on the edge of the pond. What's up? The crab skittered over. The heron said that he had been by the old lake, the ones where the humans always fished, by the city. It was almost fished out. The humans were coming in a few days with their big boats and their nets. They would take everything. All the fish in earshot started to panic and spread the rumor. And by the end of the week, everyone was freaking out. This presented an existential threat to all of them now. Luckily, the heron had a solution. Deep in the forest, way farther than the humans would ever hope to venture, was a cool, nearly bottomless pond. Its surface was teeming with insects, and edges were lined with plants in which the fish could hide. It was a paradise. The fish clambered to the surface, begging to be taken. The heron nodded. Of course, he would be happy to help. He could only take a few per day, but he should be able to get everyone out before the humans arrived. He scooped up some water, and the fish jumped in his bill. They waved as the heron took flight, knowing that they were going to their salvation, to their paradise, far from the humans. It went on like this for days, with the heron taking as many fish as would fit in his mouth to the faraway lake. Then, the crab asked him, hey, he would like to be saved too. The heron looked him up and down. Yeah, sure, hop in. The heron took flight, and soon the crab was looking down at everything he had ever known. Hey, the crab said as the heron started to descend. There's no pond here. The heron didn't need to answer. It couldn't because its mouth was full of water, but the crab looked down and saw where the heron had been taking the fish. Fish skeletons littered a flat, dry rock. Everyone, everyone that had trusted the heron to take them to a better life had died there on the rock, just a few dozen feet from the pond, and the crab would be next. The issue, however, with flying, was that the heron's wings were occupied. It couldn't do a thing. When the crab reached out of its mouth, put its pincers around the heron's neck, and snipped, as the bird, realizing what was happening, frantically tried to land. Both thudded to the ground, but only the crab lived. It dragged the head of the heron back to the lake, with a fish skeleton as proof. The rest of the fish remained in the lake, and the humans never came. The snake will fall to a greater foe, simply for being who he is. The jackal, the jackal with the crows, explained, the crows simply had to arrange the meeting. Here's what you're going to do. The jackal, who could model if he wanted to, he just didn't want to, told the crows. A few hours later, the crows strutted for all the humans to see. Caw, caw, look, I'm stealing your stuff, 
the crow hen said to the prince's men. Of course, they just heard the caw-caw bit, but the rest was pretty obvious, because the crow picked up one of the prince's necklaces and took off with it. The crow is stealing the crown prince's necklace, the guy who had been tasked with guarding it yelled. He wasn't really a bad guard, it's just that he was guarding against human thieves, not crows. He picked up his club. Everyone after it. The crow is getting away. The, the Very slowly? It was a warm day, and it took the guards a bit of time to get it together with their clubs and nets, so that they could bludgeon the crow when it landed to take back the necklace. They took off in a run, that then slowed to just like a brisk jog. Then a kind of fast walk, as the crow stayed fortuitously within sight, without much effort. Finally, he fluttered down to his nest at the base of the banyan tree. The guards laughed. They had him now. Before they could approach, they saw the crow flap up and fly to the leaves of the tree, but without the necklace in her possession. Oh well, didn't matter. They just needed the necklace. Maybe they would smash some crow eggs for good measure, and oh my gosh, it's a snake. The black asp that had its nest in the roots of the banyan tree was just as surprised as the men when they surrounded it and beat it with their clubs until there was nothing left. From that day forward, the crows were able to raise their many crow chicks in peace, and the prey had dealt with the predator. There is nothing in this world that intelligence can't control, Victor said. It's like the story of the rabbit and the lion. Wait, another one? Don't you think this is a bit excessive? But Victor wasn't listening. Just you, the lion said to the rabbit. The rabbit said, yeah, just me. The lion shook his mane. That wasn't the deal. The deal, as agreed upon by all the animals of the forest, was that I get to eat my fill each day with one animal sacrifice, or I hunt you all relentlessly. The rabbit threw up his paws. Hey, he heard the lion, for sure. He was doing his part, and he had started the walk with four other rabbits, but they passed a cave. And this other lion jumped out, grabbed the four others, ate them, and told him to tell the other lion that he's the new lion in this forest. It was all very complicated and scary. The lion sharpened his claws on a nearby tree. Oh no, he didn't. He told the rabbit to show him where this cave was. Then this lion would eat the rabbit. Soon, the pair was standing outside a cave, the lair of the rival lion. Just inside there, the rabbit said. The rabbit would wait out here so the lion could eat him. The lion roared and charged. In the cave, he did see another lion. Because in the pale light that filtered in from the daylight above, he could see his own reflection in a pool. Turned out that the other lion in the cave was as witty as him. And not only that, was mocking and mimicking the lion. The lion gave him one final warning, and when he had the gall to do the same, the lion attacked and drowned. Oh, got it. There was no other lion. It was all just a con on the part of the rabbit, Cheek observed. Victor said, yeah, but the main takeaway is that anything can be achieved by someone with intelligence. Or having an extremely gullible mark who doesn't understand how reflections work? Cheek asked. Yes, also that. Cheek paused, but can any wins via deception really be long-lasting? Victor nodded. Absolutely. Hadn't Cheek heard of the weaver who loved a princess? 
Cheeks sighed. No, but he imagined Victor was going to tell him. And he was right. We'll dive into our final story today, but that will, once again, be right after this. He's in love, the doctor said, stepping back from the weaver. All right, cool, good. I thought he was dying, the weaver's buddy breathed. Oh, he also is. He's dying of a broken heart, the doc said, packing up his bag. Is is that real? The buddy asked. He always thought that that was just like bad writing. Oh, it is, but in addition to being bad writing, it's also a real thing that happens. My advice? The doctor offered before walking out the door. Find who he's in love with and resolve it. Or else he's as good as dead. Things went from bad to worse when... The weaver and his buddy finally in private, the weaver confessed that he was in love with the princess. The buddy exhaled. Oh, wow, okay. Uh Uh-oh. He fretted for about another day and a half before inviting his alien friend over. The weaver struggled to his friend's house where he found that his friend had something under a sheet. I was saving this for cosplay and stuff, but I guess you need it more, he said an unveiled Garuda. Well, a full-scale working replica. Garuda, if you didn't know, is the bird mount of Vishnu, a god in Hinduism and the supreme deity in some sects. The buddy had engineered a flying machine that looked like Garuda, the mount, and he had an idea to save the weaver's life. But unfortunately, it included something that was technically assault and some light sacrilege. The weaver, who was already painting himself blue, said that he saw where his buddy was going with this. And yes, the weaver pretended to be the god Vishnu. The first night was the most difficult. He floated down to the princess's balcony on his magical flying machine, Aladdin style, and proclaimed that he was Vishnu, and he had arrived seeking her. The princess was confused. Why her? She didn't remember. Oh, she didn't remember. She was his wife. His enemies had cast her out and stolen her memory of him. Maybe she believed him. Maybe she just wanted to believe that she was a long-lost goddess, wife of Vishnu. But that night, she and the weaver consummated their non-existent marriage. And also for many nights after that. As usually happens, the king found out. Unlike the usual, he wasn't even mad about it. Vishnu had been stopping by. His daughter was a secret goddess. He actually encouraged the meetings. And then, the king needed the meetings. You see, he got himself in a bit of a self-inflicted pickle. It involved the guys he owed tribute to, and his butt. Namely, he showed his butt to the guys he owed tribute. Seriously, it's in the original and told them that that's all they're getting. They said that they would be back with an army. And they were. You see, the king, thinking he had Vishnu for a son-in-law, antagonized a nearby emperor, because he was tired of paying exorbitant tributes. 
The Weaver heard all of this and chuckled nervously. Oh, that was so cool. That explained why no one could leave the city that day and why an army was out front. Nice. Uh, he would just go take care of that because, yeah, he was actually Vishnu. On his way out of town, high enough in the clouds so the army couldn't reach him, the Weaver slowed. If he abandoned them, the city would fall and the princess would be taken. This was his fault. He breathed deep and turned the Garuda drone around. He would fly above the army outside, proclaiming himself to be Vishnu. Maybe they would flee. Maybe he would die. He would let the gods decide. Oh, hey, Vishnu, the actual Vishnu heard, looking down on what was about to happen. It was the real Garuda. He asked if Vishnu was going to let this guy get killed. Vishnu said, yeah, probably. Sacrilege and all that. Garuda said he advised against that. You see, faux Vishnu and robo Garuda were real enough to fool a princess up close. Very close. If the weaver fell in battle, people would say Vishnu had fallen. Sacrifices would cease. As much as this guy deserved it, they couldn't let that happen. Vishnu sighed. Yeah, Garuda was right. All right, let's go. Stop right there, the weaver shouted at the army. They looked up at him and laughed. Who was this guy? The weaver was as surprised as the rest of them when his hands started glowing. Vishnu's discus became his own, and the Garuda underneath him became real. And the weaver must have blacked out for a few minutes, because when he was aware of what was going on again, he was standing in the midst of complete carnage. The enemy king had been cut completely in half, along with nearly all of his generals. And, quote, many garments were fouled. They were begging at the weaver's feet. He made peace. The princess and the weaver were wed, and no one ever learned of the deception. Because, Victor said, the gods befriend a man, or jackal, who climbs determination's heights. He smiled. Ah, good. We're here. Then, his face changed. They had arrived at the banyan tree, where Rusty, the lion, held court. Victor and Sheik weren't honored guests, but they also were no longer outcasts. They strode in, and Rusty, spotting Victor's pained countenance, asked the jackal what was the matter. Victor said he had terrible news. He had just come from the river, from where Lively, the bull, had been drinking. Victor had heard, he paused for effect, that the king's new best friend his new workout and philosophy buddy was plotting to kill him. Next week, we'll see how everything shakes out for Victor's plan when we finish up the story. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a pooch selfie, a tennis ball that you put on top of your phone so that your dog will take good selfies, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that will probably annoy your dog more than anything. 
Our dog, no joke, hates podcasts. She will only listen to classical music in the car. For more info on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com slash membership. The creature this week is the Nasnas, from the folklore of Yemen. Now, we've talked about what happens with genies or jinn that get together with humans, and the answer to that is generally not great for anyone. The Nasnas are somewhere on the jinn family tree, farther away from the trunk. They're like the Sackville Bagginses or Bruno. Yeah, we're related, but we don't need to talk about it. And that's sad, because the Nasnas are actually very nice. Nah, I'm just kidding. They're pretty horrible. They hunt, chase, and eat people, and that's all the more impressive because they are basically bisected right at the center. They have one arm, one leg, half a torso and head, and if they can't straight out catch their prey, they'll hop around in rags, seeking help and when other people offer it, they're dead. When it comes to killing you, they have a lot of options. Not just hitting and biting, either. They're magical creatures, so when they touch a person, just once, they can melt that person's flesh right off their body. If you're wondering why a creature that wants to eat people melts flesh, well, that gives you another clue about the Nasnas. With their half a head, intelligence is not their strong stat. One time, explorers got the jump on a Nasnas, and quickly trying to out-evil the creature that appeared to be half a human, they killed, cooked, and ate it. When marveling that the creature was so sweet, they heard, from the trees, that it was because the creature ate resin from a native tree. The explorers rushed, caught, and cooked that one. Another one said that the Nasnas who spoke up should have kept his mouth shut, from higher up in that same tree. Yep, eaten. Finally, a fourth one, hiding covered in a hole in the ground, said that they were so much smarter than the other three and wouldn't say a thing. Yeah, they didn't last long either. There are a number of origin stories for the Nasnas, ranging from divine punishment of an entire people group for turning against God, to the genie story I mentioned, to a magician turning someone into a Nasnas with magical eye makeup. So, if you didn't need any more incentive to do so, probably avoid magicians offering free makeovers. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music